Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Leos Enchim Anyabu. Greetings, everyone. May the Creator bless you all. And welcome to my podcast, The Good Do E Medicine Podcast. I'll be your host, Pete Rodriguez. All my native people stand Well, uh, uh, my name is Nephi Craig. I'm White Mountain Apache on my mother's side, and I'm Navajo on my late father's side. Uh, I've been cooking 23 years professionally, and um, a big majority of that has been a, uh, a, a focus on native foods. And I started out trying, wanting to do, you know, just studying classical French cuisine and other cuisines of the world. Um, but all along the way, ever since I first stepped foot in cooking school, I wanted to do something with, with native foods and um, didn't know how I would do it, but I, I made up my mind when I was young that that's what I would do. And it's just kind of grown over time. Sometimes I still feel like I don't know how I'm going to continue doing it. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it, it, it continues to evolve. And the, the lessons that the food ingredients and experiences have taught me have been this um, really amazing, uh, valuable education for me. Um, and it's brought me to many different realms of um, education, learning, professionalism, all kinds of really amazing things. I grew up in White River, Arizona, um, on the White Mountain Apache tribe. I was I lived I was born there and I, was, I lived there till I was about ten years old uh, or eleven and my family moved away to the Navajo Nation and I my family lived in Window Rock, Arizona, and I stayed there till I graduated from high school in '98, and then um, I decided to go down to the valley, go down to Phoenix. Uh, when I got done with school, I didn't know what I was gonna. When I got done with high school, I didn't know what I was gonna do. I just it was like one of those. Uh, those wild kids that was like, I'm gonna take a year off of school and just get a job and do whatever, you know? Um, but that, that didn't work out well for me. I need structure and need, you know, positive work environment. So I had to end up, uh, by the end of that first summer, I ended up uh, having to make a, a, a decision on what I was gonna do. And I just chose cooking school. <laughs> I felt like it was something I had been doing all my life anyway, since I was a little kid and I liked it. I, I didn't really apply myself as a teenager in high school, so I never took my SATs, you know, I barely got out of high school, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and so I uh, just decided I'd go to cooking school, see what it's like. And um, that's what I did. And I, I, ended up, I ended up really liking it. I really uh, identified with it. Uh, I appreciated using my knives, um, like get to play with fire and my knives and you know, taste all these amazing foods and, you know, stuff like that. So, um, plus I had been watching like that old show, Great Chefs of the World on the Discovery Channel. And uh, this was, you know, the late 90s before social media, before the Food Network. It was just an old show of chefs in their professional kitchens, you know, just cooking a dish all of, from all over the world. And it was really neat to me. Um, it didn't show any of like the 
the you know the the fancy kind of stuff um the environment the the luxurious part it was just focused on the cooking and to me i thought it was a uh, really cool so you know it's like hey i could probably do that yeah so that's the, i got into it and i uh, stuck with it just kept just kept going and going and going really quick what what's cool i i, I kind of was I like, I wanted to be a pilot. So, you know, that's kind of weird because I don't see a lot of natives or yakis that want to, especially my tribe, they want to be a pilot, usually scared of heights or flying, but especially <laughs> in our tribe, I don't know about other tribes, but I think it is. But um, culinary school in Phoenix, right? Which school, I'm just curious, just which one, did you go to a, like a college or was it a school? I, I attended a culinary program at the Scottsdale Community College, and okay. um, uh, there, were, there were numerous other schools in, in the valley at that time. But that's the one that was within my means. Uh, I didn't have a I didn't have a large scholarship, and uh, as soon as I got it enrolled in school, I began looking for a job, and I was lucky to find one right away. Um, I didn't know cool. that the job I found was, was a very high quality job that the chefs were well-trained and mm-hmm. traveled all over. Uh, we did a majority of stuff from scratch and, you know, it was my first cooking job. So I just assumed that all jobs are like that. You know, I'm an 18 year old kid from the res. I got no clue what culinary culture is like. Um, so I was in school, I was, uh, um, taking 17 credit hours, uh, full time in the day. And then at nighttime, I'd be working the line in a, in a restaurant in North Scottsdale. Um, it's called nice. the Country Club at DC Ranch. Nice, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a nice area up there. Yeah, I, I, I was. I began working up there before when it was all just planned communities before any of that DC Ranch market was in place. Uh, the Greyhawk was just the Greyhawk Country Club was very new. You know, I saw a lot of growth over my time living in the valley. Um, but I think right away when I got into school, I noticed that there was, um, I had this hunger and desire to learn about my own style of cooking. I thought maybe I'm going to a cooking school. They might know something about natives. You know what I mean? And right. when I got in, all we were learning about was classical technique, classical French, uh, Mediterranean, uh, Asian cuisines and Italian cuisines. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, but the majority of the training was classical uh, cuisine or French cuisine. And so I was cool with that, you know, it's just kind of what I gravitated towards, but, um, I wanted to, um, wanted to do something with, with native foods. And I just didn't know what that would look like, but uh, I made my mind up early. I think when, when I was in cooking school, I realized that, um, um, it was like one of the few times I heard people saying you could become, you could master something like, like a master carpenter, master artist, master painter, you know what I mean? Master dancer or um, Kung Fu master, you know what I mean? (laughs) And so I was like, Hey man, that's pretty cool. You know, that's, that's like the, the, uh, that's how I equated that. The closest was like Kung Fu master, you know what I mean? Like spend your whole life dedicated to it. And that's kind of the impression I got. So I was like, I was like, as a 18 year old, um, kid and skater and, you know, just kind of rebellious. I was like, screw it, man. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. I like it, you know? And that's so, awesome. yeah, that's, I just decided to do that. And because there was no representation of natives and my instructors didn't know anything about native culture or cuisine. Um, I figured I would just commit myself to it. And eventually over a period of time, I would eventually become a, 
I would eventually climb the ladder, right? Climb the ranks and become a sous chef and um, chef de cuisine and executive chef, all those different ranks of chefs and eventually okay. become an executive chef someday. And I could train other natives. You know what I mean? That's a good goal at such a young age. I'm going to ask you later, um, you know, if you could uh, motivate. I know you do that. Um, I know you work with, um, it's called the Rainbow Treatment Center, correct? And, yeah. um and I know we asked you a question about um, addiction recovery. And um, yeah, I'm, that's a big part of, of what I do. And I talk about as well, because I was, um, I guess, also, you know, recovering, alcoholic, also, um, I'm sober as well. And going on five years, it took a while, maybe half of my life. But yeah, that's another big part of the podcast and trying to reach people and tell them, Hey, you don't, there's so much to live for. And, you know, but you know, yeah, there's so much to live for and to learn and to give back. But, um, the rainbow, that's where you work at right now, right? You do have a couple of, I know you're doing a couple of things, right? Is that where your, your main work as a chef or is that the cafe? Maybe you could talk about both of those. Okay. Well, um, my, 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 my journey with native foods, um, is something that I'm really grateful for. I I didn't plan to, I didn't plan to grow up and come home and be a chef at my local drug rehab. You know what I mean? Okay. (laughs) Like like when I was a young, when I was a young kid, I was really lucky to get some really high caliber, uh, classical training at a place called Mary Elaine's at the Phoenician in Phoenix. Oh, wow. And, and I had, I had, um, when I was in school, our most disciplined and, um, hardcore chef instructor, uh, he had worked at a place called Mary Elaine's and he would always talk about it, reference it as being the best in our estate and one of the best in the Southwest. And, um, he would, uh, always, you know, just encourage people to apply there and be, go there. And, um, so, you know, as a young kid, I was like, all right, hell yeah, I'm going to be like Chef Waylon, man. I'm going to I'm going to go apply there. So every year from what time I got into school, I was 18, 19, 20 and 21. I applied mm-hmm. at Mary Lane's at the Phoenician sometimes twice a year. And wow. um, that place was super luxurious, um, very old school, classical French, really big teams. They had numerous awards. Um um, just if Michelin's, if the Michelin system was in America back then, they would have been two or three stars easily. Um, just because of the quality of everything from the wow. silverware to the, the servers, uniforms, and even the cookware in the kitchen was very, was just, everything was the best. And, um, nice. I, every year I go apply and they'd always turn me down, you know, they look me in the eye and, and, uh, you know, so, yeah, right, kid. <laughs> you know, yeah, and, yeah. Here's the, here's the thing that, that about that place that kept me coming back every single year, besides knowing my chef instructor had worked there, is that, you know, as a young kid, I was in a juvenile program in um, San Diego at Camp Pendleton on the Marine Corps base. Uh, I was a devil pup. And um, so I was out, I got to, you know, I'm from a family of Marine Corps vets. My grandfather was a code talker. My dad was wow. a United States Marine during the... Um, um, combat era vet, uh, mm-hmm. Vietnam vet era. Um, his brother was a recon Marine. Um, he was out in the Quang Chi province in 68 through, through 69 and other places. 
So I'd grown up around that characteristics of discipline and, you know, tough as nails and organization, utilitarian mindset, you know, and, and when I got to meet real drill instructors, when I was, uh, when I was a kid and as a devil pup, Mm -hmm. um, I saw, I got to, you know, see real discipline, you know, like I got to get a small taste as a, as a, as a young kid, what, what my, my, my dad and his dad, my dad and his dad and his brother went through, you know, as Marines. I got to yeah. stand in some of the same places on Camp Pendleton that they were at, you know? So to me, that was pretty cool. Yeah. And when I got into cooking school, then I found my first job and I kept applying at Mary Lane's of the Phoenician. I would go and talk to these chefs. And to me, when I got to talk to the sous chefs or the, the head chef, right. the look in their eyes, I, I saw, I, I recognized discipline in their eyes. I had only seen that in two, two other places in my life. One was in the um, um, the Arizona Highway Patrol officers <laughs> that I got that I interacted with. Yeah, <laughs> and the other was in Marine Corps drill instructors. Yeah. and I would look at these chefs and like, whoa! I could just see it or sense it because I had been in contact with it, you know. And and I was like, man, that's that's it is true. You can become a master because to me, that's what that represented that that mm-hmm. that steely eyed look, you know. And so I was like, that's cool. I, I want that. I want that that look, you know. I want, I want that discipline. So I kept coming back and I, you know, by the, by the, what, 18, 19, 20, 21, by like the third or fourth year, I was about to just give up and say, you know, I probably won't get in there until I'm in my thirties, man. I need more experience. But it just so happened that I knew someone, I was my sous chef at the country club at DC ranch. Um, Name was Rusty. Um, He knew someone there who got me what you call a stage. It's where you go in and work for free for a couple nights. And I didn't know at the time that they were looking to fill positions. I just went for an experience just to see it for the first time ever. And after the, the, my stage, the head chef um, approached me and pulled me aside in the dining room and offered me a position. And wow. I, I, you know, I, I, I just freaked out. You know, I didn't, I didn't visually freak out. I just like, I was like, Whoa. And, and I just on the spot, I said, yeah, I'll take it, chef. He's like, when can you start? I was like, tomorrow. He's like, no, like, he's like, T- do it right. Put in your notice with your chef and then, you know, come start with us in a couple of weeks, three, two or three weeks. Yeah. I was like, all right. And so that was my departure from the country club. Uh, and I had been working at the country club from 98 to 99, 98, 99, 2000, 2001. And so almost five years uh, consistently at that, that one place. Um, and then I transitioned into this other place that I had been trying to get into. I always, um, I always, cause the, the Phoenician resort, if you've ever seen it in Scottsdale on Camelback mountain, right? Mary yeah, Lane's yeah. is at the top of that really big resort. So it's kind of like the, it's like at the top of that whole thing. It's on the top floor. It's like at the top of the temple, you know? So I used to say, it's like the temple of Shaolin, man. I'm going to get there someday and <laughs> learn the secrets of Kung Fu with the masters. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah. yeah. That's that's amazing story. Love it. Love it. Persistence. So let me ask you, did you ever get that that look? Do you still have that steely eye? Did you master it? I I don't know. I think so. I I, I like to think <laughs> I have. I I've really remained disciplined. I I've really remained as disciplined as I can. Um and when when I got there, it mm-hmm. was it was extreme. A lot of hazing, different forms of racism and biases oh, wow. and 
really trying to um, really trying to test my threshold. And wow. it, it was tough. It was really tough. I, really? It was so tough. Wow. I started losing hair right here on my head, you know? I would have never and, guessed um, that. Wow. <laughs> but I, uh, I eventually, um, I eventually, when I got there, this yeah. is a, like, as it relates to native foods, the, my, my first night on, or my first night in the kitchen, I see two really powerful native foods on the menu, um, mm-hmm. buffalo and Quinault river salmon. And I knew from my own study that these two foods were powerful, sacred native foods. And here they were being used on this menu and they were uh, being coined as modern contemporary French cuisine. And, uh, but no reference was given to the origins. And like on the, the, the salmon box, it had the, it said proud, proud product of the Quinault, you know what I mean? Quinault river. And it had the Northwest art. I was like, man, that's native art. Yeah. And so that was pretty cool to me, man. And so I was like, all right, the native foods are being used at this level. And that was a really strong moment, but I would just stay and continue training. And I would stay there, uh, stay there over a year. And um, I felt like that, that climb to get there. when I realized that I was just as good or better than some of the cooks in the kitchen from a production standpoint, as a, as a young line cook or a saucier, mm-hmm. Um, I realized like, wow, man, I'm, I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something on my own. That's when I kind of went public with the concept of NACA, the Native American Culinary Association. And um, from there, that was like 2003. And um, I began to do independent contract work and just work for myself, uh, start traveling and working and learning the, the, the best way that I could possibly um, understand our indigenous foods back then it, it hardly, I never hardly ever used the term indigenous foods. It was just like native foods, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that would be from like two, from 2003 to about 2006 and coast to coast, a lot of grassroots work, a lot of community work, um, from, from restaurants to schools to working for free in parks. You know what I mean? Um, it was, it was like traveling into the wilderness, man. You know what I mean? And, in 2006, I began to travel. Um, I had built up, um, you know, uh, uh, built up a, a body of work, and I was, you know, continuing to do that and getting visible. And I eventually was able to travel and work in London, and then Japan, wow. and Brazil, and um, um, Cologne, Germany. And wow. um, so that was that was life changing in itself, being able to go abroad and use native foods and then also get an outsider's perspective of not only how um, people in other cult, you know, other, in other parts of the world view Americans, you know, but also mm-hmm. how they view native Americans and how they view Apaches. You know what I mean? Like uh, I went to, when I went to Germany yeah. and they, yeah. they found out I was Apache there, they, they were just like mystified and I just had to keep working, you know? Um, and then in Japan, I really appreciated the sense of minimalism and respect for ritual and technique. Uh, and when I was in Japan, I, I was, you know, I took my skateboard with me. So I was skate, street skating on the streets. Yeah. And I remember seeing 
uh, old uh, Japanese elders. They look just like some natives from my community, man. I was like, whoa, you know, <laughs> look like they could have been from like uh, out in Crown Point or Chin Lee or, you know, they could have been from White River. You know that's what funny. I mean? I was like, yeah. whoa, man, that's that's hardcore. But um, and then going into to Brazil, into Sao Paulo mm-hmm. and uh, Campos de Guardo, I was teaching at uh, Senaki University um, and getting to see that this indigenous food um, plight was was international. It was my first glimpse at indigenousness beyond North America and the United States, where I got to meet uh, indigenous Brazilians that were doing mm-hmm. similar work of reclaiming their foods for health um, through their restaurants or through their traditions. And that really opened up my eyes um, that, that there's a common we've got common allies in the indigenous world in the Amazon, you know, in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And it's not just me in North America and us in North America. And that was, that was kind of like the introduction to what we were fighting. That was my introduction to the, the international phenomenon of the monster of colonialism, you know, and, and that really made a big impression. And it, I think it was when I was in a, on my way back from uh, Germany, I think, I was sitting in an airport, or I might—I think it was coming back from London. I was sitting in an airport, and I was just reading a magazine and sitting there, just waiting. Um, and I, on the TV, one of the TVs there, they were talking about a sports game back in America in the states. And this—I think it was a college ball game, or it was a—it was a large football game. But I remember the announcer saying. Um, we've, we've got about, uh, we've got about 40,000, uh, we've got about 40,000 spectators in this arena that's built for, you know, 150,000 people. It's not very, not a large crowd today, something like that. But yeah. that number, yeah. what they said, 40,000 people that stuck with me because I was like, holy crap, there's only like, for us as white Mount Apaches, there's like 44,000 white Mount Apaches enrolled. Mm-hmm. And I made that connection instantly just hearing it. And I was like, man, we didn't. Even, we don't even have enough people, White Mountain Apaches, to fill a football stadium. And that really kind of like put a lot of um, weight to and value to the culture, you know, for me for the first time. Mm-hmm. And it made it, it really kind of just instantly put this sense of urgency around um, the food knowledge and the experiences of trying to bring it back because – you know, we're, we're just a small, small tribe compared to the, the world, world population, you know? So a lot of experiences like that. And, um, I would come back stateside and, uh, uh, just be in Phoenix. And, uh, it was was hard to find a job. It was around 2008 when the economy was uh, in the recession and all that stuff. Right. And, um, you know, I was taking part-time work here and there and trying to source out, um, uh, consulting gigs here and there, but um, uh, still studying the native foods and doing whatever I could. But uh, then in 2009, I decided to come back. In 2008 or nine, I came decided to come back to the to the res, just because it was real tough down in the valley for me. And um, I heard that the 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 ski resort that I that our tribe owned, Sunrise, was having a job fair. And I was like, cool, man, I'll go, go get a line cooking job. You know, very, very little responsibility. I'll just hang out, work the line, earn some money. Then, you know, head back to Phoenix in the spring. Mm 
you know? Right. And I got a job there as a line cook. And um, going into that kitchen at sunrise for the first time, it blew my mind because everybody from the dishwasher to the chef, to the manager and the wait staff and all the cooks, everybody was native. Everybody was white Mount Apache or some other tribe. And that was what I was looking for all over the planet. You know, that's what I was looking for coast to coast was to find a place that had people like me that had a shared experience and um, it was cool. Um, but you know, the food was all um, powder mash and you know what I mean? Frozen soups and canned ingredients. Uh, it wasn't, wasn't very organized. It was a real beat up old uh, um, kitchen, uh-huh. um, but the people made it special. And so um, right. I would stay there for a season and um, the, the chef position would vacate at the end of that, that year. And then I applied and I, I got, I got hired as the head chef. And, um, that was in, uh, 2010 and, um, or, or yeah, two, 2009 or 10. And, um, that same year, my, my father, um, Vincent Craig, he was diagnosed with, with, uh, with cancer. And by the time he was diagnosed, it was already stage four. And, um, from the time of his diagnosis until the time he met his demise at cancer, it was about five months. And that was a really, really difficult time. Um, it, it, uh, it caused me to question everything that I ever believed was sacred, everything from organized religion to cultural um, components of my Navajo and Apache side. And nothing could stop mortality coming up. You know what I mean? Nothing. And it was very tough. And um, so my dad passed away in 2010 and my dad was also in sobriety. You know, he had gotten sober when I was a kid. And so I had seen someone in my life get clean. And so that was kind of a, it it was a really important part of my life because you see throughout all of that culinary journey that, that I was telling you about going all these places and doing all this work uh, always in the background for me was substance abuse and chemical dependency that eventually evolved into addiction and alcoholism. And so my, my struggle, you know, to, to find connection and find myself all over the planet, it, it was, you know, substance abuse was always a part of it. And, you know, if, when I, when I finally lost my dad, it was, it was a really hardcore awakening it was a moment that I realized, you know, my, one of my biggest supporters, someone that loves me and cares for me and always had my back when I was relapsing and trying to stay clean, he would always encourage me. You know, one of my biggest heroes, you know, right. he's gone. Right. And it was like, um, it's like I had to learn to uh, learn to live again. And so in 2011 is when I got clean. Um, after my, after, you know, a year of despondency and really intense, you know, uh, grieving and loss and, you know, chemical use, I just, I finally decided to, to get clean. And, you know, the, I guess the reason that, um, I share all this is because the, the theme of resiliency and tenacity and, that characteristic that we have as native peoples to never give up, 
to be passionately committed to whatever it is we're pursuing. That's, that's a part of, that's a part of our bloodline and that's a part of just how we're built. And so like, I feel like that really was in the background that really helped me to never give up, uh, to keep trying and trying and trying and, and wanting to get clean and keep working. And so I was finally able to understand that, that saying, I got, I've, I got sick and tired of feeling sick and tired. And I finally lived it. And I was just sick and burnt out and exhausted and spiritually bankrupt, man. And, and I, I was scared to, you know, didn't want to die, but I was terrified to live, you know, that, that old saying. And I just finally surrendered and said, you know, fuck this shit, man, I'm done. You know, creator help me. Like I got nothing. I, I got nothing left. I got nothing else to do. All I got left is my knives and my experience. And, you know, I don't know how to do this no more, man. And, um, from 2011, that's recovery has stuck. You know, I put in a lot of work to, to maintain my sobriety. You know what I mean? Um, powerful. Good for you. It's amazing. Yeah, man. It's an amazing and, story. Thanks for sharing. Definitely. Yeah. And that, that leads me right to that question of how I, how I come upon working at a treatment center. Okay. And so you, you asked uh, to tell you a little bit about my work with the cafe and the rainbow treatment center. Um, after about eight years of working at sunrise, my uh, I felt like I had kind of hit a plateau, so to speak. Um, during my time at sunrise, uh, we really used social media as a tool. Um, we really got creative because we didn't have a large budget for food and opulence and luxury things. But what we had control over was our minds and how we were going to train and work as a team of Apaches in the kitchen. So that was that with, um, social media, we really began to build this presence and I revitalized Naka and started holding conferences, native food conferences. And, um, we began to really build a foundation. We, we, we really contributed to the foundation of what you see in culinary arts for native foods today. Mm-hmm. So, um, a lot of those, a lot of the characters you might be able to find that are visible in the native food culinary world right now, a lot of them, um, have been acquainted with our work or were at those initial culinary gatherings. Um, but, uh, during that time, during those eight years, I would be approached numerous times to um, with with opportunities to leave the leave the res and go work on the east coast or the west coast and set up shop, uh, set up my own restaurant or whatever. And um, my sobriety and the loss of my father and being in our sacred mountains and being in that kitchen, having you know very little resources and having to be really creative by by force, man, it. it it, it caused me to witness the, the power of native foods in, in a professional kitchen and how it was building my staff, um, how skills would develop inside people. I would witness and watch people rise and fall and, you know, see, see the firsthand the impacts of um, uh, violence, incarceration and, and, and addiction and alcoholism, you know, and my staff on over nine years, you know? And so, I began to see that side, but then also the power and potential of native foods 
from a spiritual component because I was now aware of this and with my sobriety and the hole in my heart that I was searching to fill, it got bigger when my dad died. And then I found out through work and experience and discipline that native foods and building a team and being in the mountains and studying and working with our indigenous foods really began to fill that, that, that void. And that was just an experience that I could not have ever anticipated. You know, I would talk about it in theory, but now I was living it. And so when these opportunities would come, man, to, to leave the res and set up shop somewhere else, I, I turned them down because I, I felt like I didn't want to, to export my, my tribe's knowledge. You know what I mean? I feel like I didn't want to export the talent. I don't want to export native foods. I wanted to circulate this ancestral knowledge that was revitalizing and healing people and building the skills in their hands, you know, with, with job skills. I wanted to circulate that in my community. And then plus it was native foods, man, that, that brought me to terms like decolonization and indigeneity. Um, it was sobriety that brought me to mindfulness and um, open doors and behavioral health and, and, and all these really amazing things. It was the food that brought me there, not, not academia, you know? And so I felt like if I were to leave, you know, and I opened up, set up a fine dining restaurant, like I wanted to, it would be more performative than impactful in, in a way, right, you know? Right. So, so I never did, but eventually the opportunity came. Uh, the Rainbow Treatment Center was looking for a, uh, um, they were looking for a nutritional recovery program coordinator. And I was aware of the position and some possibilities. And um, so I applied and I, I, I left the resort and I began working for the treatment center in the end of 2016 and so this is kind of been like to me it's a reflection of the the prayers i had put down and my i say i i consulted the mountains you know like because i was up in the at the ski resort i was up at like 10,000 feet and i'd go out at night and pray and talk to the mountains like they're my grandpa or my dad you know and and look at the stars it's so crystal clear and I just like, please, you know, I don't, I still don't know how to do this, but I want to do something with native foods that, yeah. that helps us, you know, let us, let us put in, stay disciplined and committed and tactful and have heart as we do this work. And over time, I guess, you know, it paid off and, and I began working at the treatment center, but the cafe, um, the treatment center was securing a building to, to turn, to do something with it. And that's the old gas station that the cafe is in. So I was tasked with creating a concept for um, that integrates recovery and native foods and a vocational job training program. So um, all of my experience and my own sobriety and, um, you know, that long, that long journey, you know, all kind of all culminates in the cafe, man. And, and you know what, I, I dig it. I, I love it. Like, I had no idea. I was afraid to move into substance abuse work and mental health because I, 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 I felt like I didn't know how the two would work together. Yeah. But yeah. as soon as I got in, I started getting into, into the work and seeing like the application of the histories, the story, the foods, the taste memories, the smiles, the, um, the way people respond, you know, 
like you, you know, like when, when someone's real rough, man, or they're coming from the streets or they're getting out of prison or someone's got a long history of trauma and violence in their lives. And they're just rough as rough and tough as nails, man. And then you come in and you teach them how to make an omelet for the first time. It's this transformational experience that lasts and it's, it, it's a skill you've given them, but they've also given you a lesson in humility. So it's that kind of thing. It, it, you just, it was very difficult to find. And um, so now I, I found out I'm just as passionate for this work in substance abuse combined with indigenous foods as I am about professional cooking, you know, it's like, come, it's like finding a, my, my first love was skateboarding. Right. <laughs> and then my, my, my next love was professional cooking. And then the third love of my life has been substance abuse work. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, or at least the, these passions, you know what I mean? These passions for, for wellness. And so, but, but I love it, man. I, I love it. You know, I, I think it's a uh, life and death work. I, I think it's um, it taps into our indigenous strength. It's very poetic and tragic, but very packed with vitality and resilience at the same time. Um, and I really hope that what we do, man, can can make an impact, and um, you know, we can work with other individuals to to you know set up programs that are similar across Native America that that do this kind of stuff, you know. Because, you know, this is just the tip of the iceberg, substance abuse. That's just the tip of the iceberg of historical trauma, you know? It's just the acting out part of this long legacy of colonization, man. So there's other forms and other types. But so that's kind of how I arrived at substance abuse treatment. And, you know, I, I really like it. I, I'm a behavioral health technician and an advanced certified relapse prevention specialist. And, um, you know, they're just going to keep pushing forward with all that work, man, because it's, it's so cool. Wow. Amazing story. Thank you again for sharing, Nephi. Um, that's, your, that's your legacy. That's going to be your legacy. Yeah, I hope so. You know, I, um, always gotta I, leave, we... I always got to leave uh, something for the next generation. I talk about it in a podcast. Actually, I have a conference coming up. And you know what? I'd be, I'd be honored if you'd be one of our speakers at the conference. Um, maybe we could talk about it off the air, off the uh, podcast, but it's going to be about creating a legacy. You know, a lot of people, you know, like you said, uh, you know, they go through life and at some point they have to realize they, they it's, it's much more, they got to leave something behind. Like, when me, I changed everything as well. And it was like an awakening, like a new awakening. Like you said, you're just like, you're like born again. But yeah, it's uh, it's going to be a conference coming up in April. But yeah, you'd be, I think you'd be awesome as a, maybe even a keynote speaker on that conference because it's about legacy. So I think it would, it'd be perfect. But um, yeah, that's an amazing story. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. So yeah, like you said, the tip of the iceberg. I love that that model. Maybe you can we can uh, or you can use that as for other tribes, you know, because um, like you said, there's a lot of addiction and um, in our a lot of different uh, native communities, and it's 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 really bad, especially here in uh, our tribe as well. But um, thank you for sharing that. It's so awesome. But um, 
I also um, was reading a little bit of uh, key messages. So never give up, key message. What about don't believe everything you think? Um, yeah, maybe, um, what about that? Don't believe everything you think. Um, well, well, that that's a phrase that I came across in my own um, um, recently as we're managing the, the pandemic, right? We're all quarantined. We're experiencing loss. Um, there's uncertainty and doubt. And this also, for me, as a person in recovery, I'm still conscious of managing the skills I build for relapse prevention, right? Okay. Because uh, relapse went really high during the pandemic and a lot of other things uh, across the country. And so, um, you know, I'm just kind of doing my own work. And then I come across this phrase that says, uh, um, don't believe everything you think. And um, to me, that to me, it, it clicked because I'm aware of like stinking thinking. You know, I'm aware of like the low self-esteem issues. Um, and lot, years ago when I was trying to get clean, um, one of my recovery mentors told me, I uh, said, you know what, Nephi, you're future tripping, man. Um, think about it this way about 80 to 90% of everything you worry about is not going to happen. And that stayed with me, you know? And so when I heard, don't believe everything you think that echoed back to that. So um, that statement is, you know, when, when you're feeling anxious or you're worried and you're faced with uncertainty or stress or you're faced with change, mm -hmm. um, don't believe all the thoughts you have because your, your brain is moving in all sorts of different directions. Just because you think it doesn't mean it's true. And especially about ourselves as individuals, um, when we doubt our talents, when we doubt and question our decisions, when we have these thoughts about um, failing our children or failing our culture, or um, you know, when we have these thoughts that can hold us back, just don't believe everything you think because most of it is not true. You know what I mean? And uh, kind of just be kind to yourself and sort through it and uh, just, you know, trust that process of staying committed and you'll be all right. You know what I mean? You'll be all right. Just, just, just roll with it. Good, good, good knowledge. I love that. Don't believe everything you think. <laughs> some, some, well, some people it call it. Laugh it makes me laugh because we, I, at least for me, I think all kinds of, you know, dumb shit. <laughs> I know you get it, it can get to you, especially if yeah. you really, really. What is it, Abraham Lincoln, or what was that famous quote? Um, whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. So just don't just think you can do it. Yep. Or um, like your, I love like it. your podcast, man. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, or imposter syndrome, you know, you get to yeah, right. a certain level, or you get in front of whatever you're going to do, then you're like, man, am I good enough? You start thinking, you know, you yeah. let that get in front of you, in your head. I have all these degrees, I have all these certifications, all that, but then it's that little thinking, imposter syndrome, you get in front of these huge crowds or whatever. But it's that thing. And, and I think that's really important for, for our native audience, you know, for our, yes. our fellow natives, because we don't really see ourselves too much out there represented in, in, right. in the dominant right. society. When we do see ourselves reflected, it's usually become because of like health disparities or social ills or statistics. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? 
And so um, it's it's kind of where it's pretty common for us to doubt ourselves and to think us right. into paralysis. You know what I mean? So we don't take action. So this was like that, that, that message is like for, for, you know, all of us natives out there that are struggling to do good. And uh, we've come from, you know, we've come from our, our own journey and um, you know, just, just remember you deserve to be happy and go for it. Perfect. Love it. Love it. And you hit the nail on the head. There's not that many chefs, podcasters, people out there. And when they want to do something, they, you know, they go, they start thinking and doubting themselves that they can uh, do that and be out there. Um, just recently, I'm on that Clubhouse app, the audio app a lot. And it's, uh, it's just an audio only app. You just talk. There's no video. But there's some people on there that are just shy and they're native because I, I, I created a club in there just for native indigenous communities. And they're shy just to even talk on the app you know, to turn on the little mic and talk to other natives. They're shy to do that. And I'm like, I'm trying to encourage them. I finally encourage one person. I said, just start a room on your own and just start speaking. If nobody shows up, nobody's going to know. It's just like the tree that falls in the forest or whatever that saying goes. Yeah, right. <laughs> but I joined her and she started, she's a historian. I'm like, you have a lot of knowledge to share. But she goes, Pete, I'm, I'm scared. You know, I'm, I don't, I can't do, I'm like, oh my gosh. So I encouraged her. She started a room. It was just me. I said, encourage one of your friends to come in the room and, and talk. So there was like three or four people of us, but she did it. And she was the first one. And she has all this knowledge. That's her background as a historian. And she was talking about indigenous knowledge. That's her trained, um, I guess, profession historian. And she had all this knowledge. And I'm like, you have to, you know, start more rooms, start more talks. Don't be shy and just get out there and do it. Once you do the first one, you know, just, you'll just get better. And, and don't think, you know, don't believe everything you think you can do it. <laughs> and then she messaged me later on. Thank you so much. You know, you, you know, but you know, those little changes. That's what I love doing. And, um, now, the reason I started the podcast, and that's why I wanted to have you on here, because I knew you were going to have this, bring some good information, bring the heat. But thank you so much. Don't believe everything you think. I'm going to use that if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So um, lastly, I know we've been on here for a little bit, maybe an hour. And um, I do want to um, tell us a little bit about the telehealth workshops for um, an indigenous food health. Um, yeah, if you could talk a little bit about that. Um, yeah, well, uh, um, I, I do uh, a lot of, um, you know, prior to the pandemic, a lot of my work in native foods, um, you know, uh, for a number of years, there were very few spaces or organizations to carry it out. So um, I really had to create the space for myself and operate as an independent contractor and consultant. So I've got this long track record of working for organizations and uh, um, agencies and schools and hotels, um, uh, um, you know, all over the, the country and in other parts of the world. And so, um, you know, I'm pretty experienced with as an educator and speaker and a chef trainer. 
Um, so um, as the pandemic hit, uh, I, was, I was already familiar with distance learning and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I was already familiar with um, using Zoom and, you know, those type of uh, applications. So, um, so now I still uh, am able to offer those type of services. And they could be, you know, cooking demos, definitely always have a component of health. And um, with 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 my uh, um, culinary experience and therapeutic ability now and, and background, um, I do uh, offer those telehealth services and indigenous foods could be recovery themed, could just be general wellness. Um, but they're always going to kind of be encapsulated around that um, the health components and the solution focused elements of moving our peoples forward with native foods as a skill set. You know what I mean? Um, I, I do my best to be an educator that presents the knowledge and information um, with a lot of depth and weight to it, but in a way that is um, um, uh, like uh, um, easy to digest, right? Accessible. So a lot of my, my, um, my training and, and workshops revolve around just doing my best to get people started cooking um, because my, here's my perspective on it is, if I were to do a, a workshop or a class with all foraged, homegrown, organic heirloom seed ingredients, um, it's cool and it's special and it makes my ego feel good. You know, like I'm an indigenous revolutionary or whatever from on as a cook. But in reality, for the viewer or the audience, that can become a barrier because not all of us in our communities have the ability to have access to land, to get foraged foods or even have heirloom seeds. So my approach is to really uh, focus on the, the fundamentals of cooking, the behavioral components of what's happening in a group or as an individual, and uh, begin with indigenous food identification and um, just really tie in a lot of those behavioral themes of wellness, nutrition, recovery, and indigeneity. So that's kind of what I do. Um, could be from 60 minutes to a couple hours, just depends on the organization. Wow. Another amazing I love it. Telehealth workshops. I'm telling you, you need to come on Clubhouse with me. You'll okay. love the app. And uh, there's a lot of talks on there. It's like a it's like a live conference. Um, you just go in there, like I go in there right now, and I can introduce you to people on there. And there's talks going on about and food, um, things you're passionate about, you know. But um, but um, thank you so much for coming on this podcast for sure. And I'm going to put your email or your social media instagram um, information on the podcast on the notes um when it comes out so uh your message hopefully it'll impact i'm sure it will impact a couple of people our audience our listeners i'm pretty sure hopefully they'll be thankful and i'll put your information on the notes so uh the podcast does go out on apple what is it google Spotify, iHeart, and stuff like that. So has a pretty good reach. Thankful, really thankful and grateful to our listeners. But um, yeah, we're coming towards the end of the uh, the episode, and I want to thank you again, Nephi. Did I miss anything? Maybe something. Gosh, I wish Pete would ask me this, or something you might have thought of. Um while we were speaking today that you want to add or something? 
Uh, well, there's 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 a lot more details to to my journey, and um, I guess to sum it all up is mm-hmm. is just you know follow your passions, you know practice self care, take care of yourself, um, and never give up. And um, right. uh, us as Native peoples, when we're talking cultural re- cultural revitalization and taking care of our health, and we're talking health disparities and revitalizing. This is all very, very serious work, um, but don't take it too seriously to let it weigh you down so much. You know, have some fun. Use that native laughter that we all have got, you know, bust out that native slang and make some jokes and make some memes. Right. You know what right. I mean? Like, right. Exactly. Use, use all that, that, that really fiery laughter spirit that we got to like poke back at the oppressor. You know what I mean? And then yeah. have fun while you're doing it because it, it's some really serious work that we're engaged in. And our futures are at stake, but right. you know, at the same time, that doesn't mean we can't enjoy it and be creative. It'd be really creative in the work. It, um, you're right. You're so that's, right. That's it's what you. will make it take root. Is if if it's creative and the young generation says sees the hard work as fun, that's going to make it real. You know what I mean? When you add your own regional tribal slang and funny humor to it, that's what makes it legit. And that, that I just want to share that. And a uh, Big shout out to my son, Ari, and my little baby, Tani, my little boy, Rally, and the Apache tribe, the Navajos, you know what I mean? Um, yep. It's, they all made me. <laughs> Perfect. They'll be they'll be listening to this podcast once I, I drop it. Let them all know. Anybody else you want to shout out? Yeah, just everyone that's that's in the in, – in, in the, um, just want to shout out anyone else that's doing the work, you know, could be any, doesn't have to be foods. It could be one of the other arts, could be literature, it could be science, um, whatever profession, trade or industry you might be in, um, stick it out and get in it for the long haul. Cause we need you. I need you. You know what I mean? That's, that's, that's true. Yep. We all need you. We all need you. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you, Nephi. Yeah. Um, we're making a difference. So like you said, gotta have you know it's it's a little it's, it's serious stuff we're doing too but um it gets can get pretty heavy the conversations but i love having fun like you said we had a conversation real quick uh who has the best fry bread i know fry bread is not traditional but um a lot of the people i were talking to they were saying that Diné have the best fry bread and these were midwest tribes and even canadian they all have a, a type of fry bread it's called something else, but it was, you know, we were having fun. I said, you know, gotta have fun. I know, you, you know, and the consensus was the Denae, the Navajo fry bread, among the people who were talking. So I thought that was kind of cool. That's funny. Yeah. So lastly, Nephi, I'm going to ask you a question. We're going to have fun. I got a right. little cool Uh-oh. deck. There's some cool questions on here. These are just to have fun. Let's see what Nephi, other things he has. Oh, I won't use that one. I won't use that one. <laughs> it's PG-13, this stuff in here. Okay. It's good to know, I guess. <laughs> All right, let's do this one. It's just random. I picked it up. Would you, Nephi, would you rather go 30 days without your phone or your entire life without dessert. It might be easy. I don't know. Uh, I could, I could, that could do without my phone, man. Yeah, me too. Me too. I, that was an easy one. But, 
Yeah, that was an easy one, but we like to have fun here. I should pick another one, but yeah. So yeah, my phone, it's like, I know I do a lot of social media and I use it for the podcast, but really, I don't even miss this. I wake up, a lot of people check their phone and we tell them it's a, you know, we do a lot of training here at the Yaki Tribe and I say, you know what? Get rid of your phone, you know, or at least put it away. But yeah, eventually when I get older, I'm going to just go off the grid. You know, I'm not going to stop doing a lot of stuff that I'm doing, but I'm going to go off the grid, go live in the mountains somewhere in the desert, you know, look at the stars. Because if no one's, like you said, if no one's seen the stars, like out, you know, up, dark, really, it's so beautiful. It's so bright and the stars are like, just like right there. But um, yeah, just just going to end the, the podcast. Thank you again, Nephi, for um, coming on the podcast, the Good to E-Medicine podcast. I'm going to make sure we get your information on the podcast notes. And yeah, thank you. I always end the podcast with health as wealth because um, I've been there and um, I know that your health is the most important thing you have right now because if you don't take care of yourself first, you can't take care of I put it on Instagram. You can't take care of your family. You can't take care of your work, your job, your passions. Do what we're doing if you don't take care of your health first. But um, yeah, thank you very much, Nephi. Yeah, thank you very much for having me and uh, stay safe out there. Yep, same here. Stay safe.